Hey y'all, welcome to episode four of LA Unmastered. I'm your host, LA. So this episode, we're going to be talking about Richmond, Virginia. That's right. What us Yanks only know as the capital of the Confederacy. But after spending nine days and eight nights in this glorious city, I learned that it is so much more than that. In fact, if those racist soldiers were alive today, they would die all over again from shock. This city is overflowing with art, culture, diversity, and history that we truly know nothing about up north. Unfortunately, the only thing I really wasn't able to get a taste of was the live music scene, you know, because of a pandemic. But some way, somehow, the music became a part of my trip. This trip was supposed to be about me visiting my girl, Kristen, who recently left New York because she landed an amazing job down there. And the only other real plans I had was to hang with my old friend, JR, who I haven't seen in eight years. But it ended up being a revelation and a revolution in my life. So let's get up on into it. episodes unplugged is going to be a little bit different like I said I couldn't check out any live shows because they currently don't exist and I wasn't virtually attending any shows this week but I still managed to take in a whole lot of art my second night in town my girl Kristen bought us tickets for the drive-in which is located in ready for it Goochland yes that is Goochland this is a real place the double feature for the night was Never Ending Story, then Labyrinth, starring the everything himself, David Bowie. We got subs, packed up snacks, a little vino, and headed for the gooch. <laughs> we pulled in. This place was bumping, which in the time of the Rona is not too exciting. Since I have a new baby SUV, we figured that we could pop the trunk open and sit in the back. Yo, the cars next to us are outside, no mask, and there's a whole lot of them. We look at each other and say, shut it down. So we just decide to enjoy the drive-in the normal way. The commercials were hilarious. They were all from the 70s and 80s. And did y'all know that Bounty has had half sheets this whole time? Like what? They've really been killing the paper towel game. Then before the feature presentation, they played the music video for Never Ending Story's theme song. That video is so damn 80s. It's performed by Lim Hall featuring Beth Anderson. So this dude has a mullet with bangs and the whole thing has been straightened with a hair straightener. He has the Zach Morris dye job. So, you know, brunette on the sides and underneath and frosty blonde on top. I can't even get into his bright blue pants and leather jacket combination either. 
But the chick took a dress from Tina Turner's closet, which I'm not hating about. It was leather, sleeveless, and a short, like super short dress. She has the freshest fade with her hair that has also been straightened to stick right up. What's crazy is I'm like, I've heard this song recently, but I hadn't seen this movie in years. Then I realized it's the song that Dustin was singing to his boo Susie in Stranger Things. The 80s, I tell you, I love him. Like, if there was any time I wish I was a teenager aside from the 90s, it was the 80s. The clothes, the music, the movies, all of it. Now, like I said, neither of us had seen the movie in years. We were looking at each other like, this is not a kid's movie. Have y'all seen this shit recently? It's fucking terrifying, traumatizing, and it's trippy as fuck. Like, whoever wrote this was absolutely on acid. So I always hated the quicksand scene when the horse dies. Artex, R.I.P. But it's not quicksand. It's the swamp of sadness. And if you let the sadness overcome you, you die. Like, what type of shit is that? Is this what caused all of our mental issues as adults? Like, I'm telling you. Then you got this scary ass rock eaters, the laser eyes sphinxes, motherfucking Falcor. Okay, why do I remember Falcor being super cute? He is scary. A dragon dog? No. But at the end of the day, you learn that this movie is about us humans and the importance of having hope. We absolutely cried several times by the time the movie was over. Please rewatch this. We didn't stay for Labyrinth. I think we had had enough. But we had a Celine Dion sing-along on the way back home, which turned into me introducing her to Chromio's Quarantine Casanova, which ultimately led to a bourbon-fueled dance party at the rental. Since I was there for nine days, I had to find a way to entertain myself since my friends are human people and a part of society, aka have jobs. So on that Monday, I decided to take in some nature, which, if you know me, does not include anything adventurous. So I found a park with the lake and I was like, this is cute. I'm a regular old Bear Gryllis, you know. It was called Maymont Park. It was really beautiful. I walked around the lake and took it all in. However, once I reached a certain area, I noticed there were geese everywhere. Then I noticed a smell. Yo, there was poop everywhere. And my dumbass decided to pull out my brand new Fila platform kicks because, duh, they're cute. But then here I am tiptoeing around like an asshole. I just wanted to sit by the water, but those geese were not letting it happen. They ran that park, okay? They were not afraid of me. Trust, okay? Apparently, I found out after the fact that they were animals all up in that park like a mini zoo. I have mixed feelings about zoos, but I also feel like they probably hadn't seen anyone for so long. So it would have been nice to have a little animal bonding time. But as I'm walking back to my car, I see the most southern shit I've ever seen in my life. There was a chick leaning up against her car, watching the water peacefully as she was eating crab legs. I couldn't believe my eyes. But y'all, she looked so happy. It's a level of contentment I wish to seek. The next day, I woke up early and decided to look into going to a museum. I figured they'd be empty, especially on a Tuesday morning. I knew I wanted to hit the Fine Arts Museum, but I wanted to see what else was there. Let me tell you, I hollered when I saw that there was an Edgar Allan Poe Museum. I don't know why, but that man gives me all of the dark, creepy feels. Like, mm. 
He may be the reason I love horror so much, too. I read Poe at a very young age. The Telltale Heart was the first story of his I read. I guess I considered that my first psychological thriller, which is my favorite horror genre. The suffocating nature of guilt in that? Ooh, so good. I then read The Raven, The Pit and the Pendulum, and then Lenore. I enjoy a good book every once in a while, but I adore poetry. His poetry gets to me. It's so dark and yet so romantic. His poems often have a theme of beauty, death, and youth. My favorite line from Lenore is, Wretches, ye loves her for her wealth, but hated her for her pride. I love that. So the house in which the museum was located was not Poe's. However, it was where he once stood guard while he was in the military. Did not know that. Or that he was kicked out of West Point primarily because he cared more about poetry than war. Hard save. Nonetheless, a lot of his possessions were in the museum. There was even the bed he slept in as a child when he was adopted by John Allen. So Edgar's parents were traveling actors. His mother, Eliza, succumbed to tuberculosis and his dad abandoned him. Not so fun fact. Almost every woman in Edgar's life has died of tuberculosis. And so did his brother, actually. Did you know that tuberculosis was a fashion trend back in the day? Yo, it was known as the beautiful death because women would look, quote unquote, attractive, which what? They would become ghostly white and extremely thin. Women who were not sick would wear white makeup and buy clothes to make themselves look withered. Patriarchy is really some shit. And the American standards of beauty have always been whitewashed, like literally. Something I didn't know about his love and his wife, Virginia, was that she was his first cousin. And when they married, she was only 13 and he was 27. Like, damn, Edgar, I knew you were messed up, but come on. I was in love with you. I wore the perfect black dress so we could get ghost married. And you did this to me? That's gross. Like, that made me so mad. Things that did not make me sick, though, was seeing the first edition of The Raven and the first edition of The Raven and other poems. I got to see the desk where he wrote, and then they even brought in the staircase from his childhood home. I also learned that it was Poe who introduced readers to criminology and crime scenes. He actually coined detective without ever creating the word. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a.k.a. the creator of Sherlock Holmes, said, Where was the detective story until Poe breathed the breath of life into it? Now, Poe's death is the most fascinating because no one knows what happened to him. What makes no sense is that he was found at a Baltimore polling place in someone else's clothes and barely conscious. His friend took him to the hospital where he died four days later. Now, he had returned from Philly of a Philly business trip 10 days before that. Listen, he was an alcoholic, gambler, and he tried to commit suicide several times in his life. They did find an array of shit in his blood, but nothing at lethal levels. Back in the day, it was wild. Like, they found arsenic, lead, and mercury, but nothing that was out of the ordinary for that time. His liver didn't give out. They couldn't figure it out. He himself is the greatest mystery of all time. One of the best parts of the museum is the garden. There's an old-ass fountain, and the grounds are just gorgeous. There are two black cats named Edgar and Pluto. Pluto came right up to me and nestled on my legs. Edgar wasn't as direct, but we were cool. 
I bought way too much shit in the gift shop, but an Edgar Allan Poe adult coloring book, like that's an absolute must. The person working the counter told me that there's a museum in the Bronx. Like what? I had no idea. He gave me a little tidbit though. He told me that if I walked out of a set of these set of doors and go around the corner, I'll find bricks from Edgar's New York City home. And sure enough, they were there. That was pretty dope. My next stop was the Fine Arts Museum. It was massive. In this big-ass building, there were maybe 10 other patrons. So with the exception of the Sunken Treasures exhibit, I was the only one. That was amazing. I may never have a museum experience like that again, so I really just took that in. And let me tell you, those security guards were on the mask. This dude barely had his uh, mask past his nose. And the security guard with pink hair was like, nah, not today. I was so here for it. I was very happy to know that Virginia was one of the few southern states to require masks as law. I was like, thank goodness. The Sunken Treasures exhibit was pretty cool. So over 1,200 years ago, two Egyptian cities disappeared into the Mediterranean Sea. In 1996, the European Institute for Underwater Archaeology began exploring. Little by little, they started to find so many artifacts and treasures. Let me tell you, this shit was sick. Seeing hieroglyphics up close was something else. They found a lot of incense holders, too. I'm like, that's what's up. I'd love to see it. I learned a lot about Osiris, the god of rebirth and the ruler of the land of the dead. And Isis, mother of God, great in magic, mistress of the two lands, which means upper and lower Egypt. One thing is that they were brother, sister, husband, wife. That's cool. And Seth, their jealous brother, murdered Osiris. But it's all good because Isis brought him back to life. So there's that. Gods are like really wild. Like if you ever really like read the stories of the gods, like... It's a mess. Like, if you thought we had drama, like, we ain't got nothing on them. What I did not know was that ancient Greeks and Egyptians rocked with each other. The Ptolemaic Greeks did not appropriate the Egyptian culture. They embraced it. It was very interesting to read that. Their religions are actually quite identical. In fact, all religions are quite identical. But that's a stone conversation for another day. New religions and cults were formed during that time with a combination of their gods. For instance, Harpocrates is the Greek form of Horus the child, Isis's baby. Amun is the Greek god Zeus. Isis and Hathor formed Aphrodite and later Venus and Rome. They integrate their cultures and religions. And damn, do I love a cult story? I most definitely would have been in one of those ancient Egypt Macedonia god cults. Like, that shit sounds fun. Okay, so I just want to say this too. I believe that Beyonce's headdress and Black as King that loons were saying was for devil worship is an actual representation of Isis because their headdresses were the same. But that's just my opinion and random side note. Afterwards, I proceeded to head upstairs and make my way through three floors of the museum. I started with George Bellows. He is an American realist painter. He made a lot of sports art, which I found fascinating. He painted The White Hope, in which he depicts Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion, knocking out Jim Jeffries in Reno on July 4th, 1910. Did not know that happened on Independence Day. And good old karma, always popping up on the right times. 
1916, he painted a woman on the floor doing leg exercises while her husband was in bed asleep, which was a satirical comment on the emerging culture of weight loss and body image. At the time, there was an increase of advertising and films that elevated the popularity of being body conscious. Sounds like right now. Hmm. Bello said in regards to this piece, gymnastics before retiring are supposed to reduce the flesh. The husband is contented with his figure. Damn, patriarchy strikes again. I love that this man saw this and was like, this is trash. I think it's really cool. I truly enjoyed the piece 16 East Gay Street. It was a scene from his hometown of Columbus, Ohio. But what made it so great was the diversity. Black and white people, happy, smiling, living side by side. It was truly a captured moment. People on the porch reading the paper, two guys fixing a bike, people walking home. It was cool. I continued to wander through the museum. I traveled to Greece, then Japan, where I stopped to bow and pray with Buddha. I went to India and saw the beautiful statue of Shiva and a meditation temple. I went back to Egypt. There was an actual real life mummy in there, which I was not okay with. Like, leave the dead to rest. Do not remove them. Something about that just did not make me feel good. And then I went to Africa. Let me tell you, it was Killmonger's nightmare. Everything in that room was gifted to the museum and not by an African. And the energy in that room, like you could feel like "Mm -mm, that wasn't right. I did not stay in there too long. The whole vibe was just really off. I said a prayer and apologized for the colonizers. And then I left. Aside from traveling the globe, I went back in time to the Baroque period and the Renaissance. Lots of religious artwork, particularly of the Virgin Mary and Jesus. And let me tell you, whether you're a practicing Catholic or not, that guilt still lives in you. As an automatic reflex, I signed the cross and said a quick prayer. I tried to not and I wanted to be rebellious, but I couldn't help it. But then I saw a beautiful portrait entitled black jesus and sure enough it was black jesus with a crown of thorns and his dreads this glorious oil painting was done by stanley rayfield who's only two years younger than me i love it it just gives me hope then i exited the room and saw the most beautiful portrait ever the style was recognizable and i knew it was a kahinde wiley it was a beautiful red background with gold flowers In front stood a tall, fine-ass man who was looking like Method Man at first glance. But it was the shoes that immediately got me. It was a yellow I would recognize anywhere, especially being from New York. I started at the Tims on his feet and looked up to notice he was in a Sean John tracksuit with a white tee underneath. In his hand, he had a sword which he was holding like a cane. Everything about it moved me. Wiley created and named this painting after the portrait of William Vaughn Hethusen in 1625. In regards to this particular artwork, he says, A big part of what I'm questioning in my work is what does it mean to be authentic, to be real, to be a genuine article or an absolute fake? What does it mean to be a real black man? Realness is a term applied so heavily to black men in our society. A message, a word. A thought. It is important to note that the famous statue he created with the young black man who has dreads on the horse, rumors of war, now stands in front of the museum. I completely missed it the first time around, and JR definitely played the shit out of me because I was like, I just drove in and was like, that's a cool statue. (laughs) But I was paying attention to the road. Like, what do you want me to do? 
But I stopped there on my way back to New York. And I'll go into what happened there a little bit later. My absolute favorite exhibit was Louis Draper and the Camoignet Workshop. When I tell you it was just me and the security guard in this exhibit, I felt like I was Rihanna or something. But what I loved about being alone was that I could take my time, look at every photograph, and just be in awe of the beauty. Louis Hansel Draper was born in Henrico County, Virginia. I don't know if that's how you say it, but Henrico? Henrico! Okay, that's probably not right. But he was born there in 1935. He's a Libra, in case anyone was wondering. He had a close-knit community in Richmond's East End and attended Virginia State. When he was 22, he moved to New York City. A network of friendships formed with African-American photographers, and in 1963, they united to become the Camoignet Workshop. Camoignet comes from the Kikuyu people of Kenya. It means a group of people acting together. These photographs took my breath away. I'll be sure to post them on my IG page. My description is just not going to do them justice. And my recommendation is also to look up the collective. The Camoignet photographers were very much a part of the civil rights movement. Many of them had marched on Washington, which took place 57 years ago this year on August 28th. While others grew up in the South and witnessed the brutality of Southern law, they participated in sit-ins and engaged in resistance. A part of that was capturing black people on film in a way America has never seen. When I tell you I saw photographs I had never seen in my life, this one of Malcolm X had me in tears. The lighting of the photograph was perfection. His face in that moment was power. There was another image of Betty at his funeral. What took me aback about that one was black and white cops protecting her. That is important. I have never seen a photo from back then of black officers. That moved me. The battle of being a black person wearing blue back then? Hmm. There was also a powerful photo of Porkchop Davis giving a speech right here in New York City on 125th and Lenox. Then I saw writing that said, akin to jazz. I got so hyped. The first was just a simple, wondrous image of a couple dancing. The next was two bassists in the Lower East Side playing in the shadows. Then I turned to see this perfect silhouette of Miles Davis at the Village Vanguard. I could not stop my tears. I had never seen this photograph before. It stopped me dead in my tracks. Then right next to it, a photo of John Coltrane sitting at a piano playing the sax. There was also this photograph of Mahalia Jackson with her hand resting on a piano. And although you can't see the mic in her other hand, you knew it was there and she was singing her heart out because right in front of her is this man with his hands clasped looking at her in awe. That was also the beauty of this exhibit. There were so many photographs of black women, just us being beautiful and alive. What I found fascinating was that there was only one female photographer a part of the collective. Her name is Ming Smith. She was born in Detroit. She's a Hampton grad. And she's the first African-American female photographer to have her work acquired by MoMA in New York City. So I just wanted to put some damn respect on her name because she not only held her own in a collective of all men in the 60s, she held her own in her entire field. She photographed one of my favorite pieces in the gallery. It was of Sun Ra, who's a legendary jazz musician known for his eclecticism and drip. Okay, 
I didn't go as ham in this gift shop, but I did find Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters by John Steptoe, which was my favorite storybook as a child. I had to take that home. The final museum I visited was on my last day in Richmond. It was the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of Virginia. I was the only person in that museum aside from the four people who work there. And thank goodness, because I spent a lot of time in there cursing, crying, and yelling. This museum isn't large, just two floors with a few rooms. However, I spent two hours in there. And in that time, I learned more than I did in every Black History Month in school combined. As a Caribbean, my parents did their best to teach me as much as they could about American Black history, especially my mom, who's a teacher. Because at the end of the day, they were just learning themselves. I knew about Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines before I could talk. Ate soup jumeau every New Year's Day to celebrate Haitian liberation. My favorite was when my mom would be like to my dad, that's why my people were free before yours. Like, that's ice cold. Jamaica didn't gain their independence from British imperialists until 1962. And on July 19th, which is also my dad's birthday, but Jamaican Independence Day is celebrated on August 6th. The first official prime minister was Alexander Bustamante. The most important lesson my mom ever told me about the struggles of the Afro-Caribbean people and the African people were that the only thing that separates us is the boat stop. Slavery is just something my brain has so much trouble processing. Like, I understand it happened. We fought a war to allegedly end it. And this country is covered in the blood of Native Americans and Africans. I guess my brain just has trouble accepting this trauma. It's already hard being a black woman in this century. Grieving over our genocidal history is just too much to bear. There was a photo there that broke me. I mean, my heart shattered on the floor. It was a little boy, no older than two or three, caged off in what looked like a petting zoo. And there were white people all around trying to feed him bananas. This was an actual photograph. This wasn't a rendering or a reenactment. This was real. I don't remember the year, but it wasn't that long ago. I took a lot of photos while I was there so I could have the information but that photo was not one of them because I just didn't even want to have that. I couldn't stop thinking about what happened to that little boy. Did he grow up? Did he ever get to be free? We were treated like animals, actual animals, like shit. We still are. There was a section dedicated to the evil that was Thomas Jefferson. I knew this man owned slaves, but not 607. I even hate to use the term slaves because our spirit and our culture has never been enslaved. That's evident because culture vultures love to try and steal it. But he did. He owned 607 African people. That included Sally Hemings, the woman he began raping, or the child he began raping at 14 and impregnated at 16. Which also means four of the 607 were his children. Probably more because we don't know. So let's talk about Sally for a second because I learned so much about her. We've been taught that they were lovers. She was his concubine. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. 
She was his prisoner. She is the daughter of Elizabeth Hemings, who was the house servant to John Wales. John Wales is also the father of Martha Wales Skelton Jefferson, who was Thomas Jefferson's wife. John Wales gave Sally to Thomas as a gift when he married Martha. So yes, John Wales gave his daughter her own half-sister as a gift when she married Thomas Jefferson. How fucked up is that? Like, this should really happen. When Sally was 14, Thomas Jefferson took her to Paris, France, where he made her his domestic servant. However, France wasn't with the fuck shit, so she was a free woman in Paris. She refused to go back with Thomas Jefferson. However, he conned her into a treaty to get her to come back. Remember now, he's a grown-ass man, and at the time, she was a 16-year-old girl. The treaty was that she would agree to return to slavery, but she would work in his chambers, raise his children, perform only light duties like sewing, and her children would all be free at the age of 21. Sounds like a scam, if I've ever heard one. When her two eldest sons were free, she lost contact with them and they entered white society. What I didn't know was that Sally had very fair skin and had long black hair. So their children easily passed in society as white. Her youngest son and daughter were freed in Jefferson's will. And Sally, well, she was technically freed when he died, but not really, and only got nine years of this alleged freedom until she died in Charlottesville. Jefferson denied until his last breath that he fathered children with Sally. Everyone knew. Then in 1998, his descendant did a DNA test and it was confirmed. The museum had a sign of all 607 names. A lot of the first names were the same. A lot of the last names were the same. Hemings, Hearn, Gillette, Fawcett, and Hubbard. Because he bought them as a family unit. Like, just fucking crazy. But the bottom row just said, name unknown, 11 times. That is 11 people. Just sad. I learned a lot about the civil rights movement in Virginia's part and so many of our greatest strides to equality. We hear so much about Brown versus Board of Education. But did you know that the Virginia's governor at the time closed down the schools so that he didn't have to integrate as required by federal law like that's how he circumvented it by just closing the schools it was called the stanley plan the virginia state school board controlled the school's rosters and didn't include any black students in addition only white students could receive student scholarships so when we say that there is a system put in place to fuck us this is that system and it's been working ever since ever since we never hear about Barbara Johns, who led a student protest asking for equality in education and better facilities, asked the NAACP in Richmond for assistance in 1951, three years before the Supreme Court made it federal law. What about Gloria Jean Meade and Carol Irene Swan? They were the first two black students to integrate in Richmond schools in 1960. We all know Rosa Parks, but what about Irene Morgan? 
She refused to sit on the back of the bus on a Greyhound, which led the NAACP suing the state of Virginia and ultimately leading the Supreme Court to end segregation on all bus travel between states. Just so much knowledge. And yeah, these federal laws were put into place, but it didn't mean that we were treated equally. We had to constantly fight. We're still fighting. It was eerie to see photographs of protesters in the 60s that had signs that said, protest Jim Crow and police power, and we will die for our civil rights. Because almost 70 years later, we're still here. Before I left, I bought up that entire gift shop as well. I got this dope book called The Theology of American Popular Music, a special issue of Black Sacred Music, a journal of theomusicology. I'm super excited to start reading it. And Michael Jackson's on the cover. So I feel like this is about to get really, really real. I also had a wonderful conversation with the woman managing the museum that day. I cried, obviously. I thanked her a million times. I told her that I gained so much from coming here today. She thanked me for coming. I shared with her my background as a Caribbean woman, which, side note, they had a map I learned from that map that 792,000 people were stolen from Africa and brought to Saint-Domingue, which is now known as Haiti, and 1,020,000 people were kidnapped from Africa and brought to Jamaica. This made me want to dive so far into my family history. This wonderful woman told me that the museum is trying to work with the schools to expand the education because they don't just be lying to students up north either. Then she shared with me her family history. Her great-great-grandmother was what was known as a breeder. She was raped by the person who is technically her great-great-grandfather. Yes, African women were raped by their owners, their friends, and business associates so that they could produce children who were just seen as property to be sold. Her great-grandmother is a product of this rape. She luckily said that they didn't sell her and she eventually gained her freedom. Ain't that some shit? Slavery was not that long ago. It only ended 155 years ago. Jim Crow ended 52 years ago. This country's past drips in blood. There would be no America without African-Americans, yet we're treated like we're nothing, like we're lazy. I'm sorry. But who was lazy during slavery? Because I don't think it was us. And there's an entire system set up for us to fail. Every piece of it, from financial to judicial. Look at the educational system. Look at what they did. Prevented us from having an education. And when we did get to go to school, it was in rundown buildings with barely any textbooks. That's why we say this system is working exactly the way it was intended. So our struggle didn't end in 1865. It continued, subtle to the world, brutally obvious to us. The rhetoric and narrative surrounding Black people needs to change. We know we're magic because we look at what we survived and how we triumphed. I got to see Bernie Sanders speak once while I lived in Phoenix. Quick tangent, that man was robbed twice. In 2015, 2016, I learned how the DNC was absolute trash, how they actually really didn't care about people at all. Ice-T actually tweeted this a few months ago, and it stuck with me. He said, Republicans and Democrats are two wings on the same bird. Anyway, 
I immediately knew I was voting for this man when he said something I had never heard a white person say in my life. America needs to apologize for slavery. We have never done that. And that is the first step. Yo. It's like, yeah, let's get the reparations for black Americans whose lineages traces back to slavery in this country. But can we get a damn apology first? Like all we ever hear is to get over it. There's so much pain and suffering here that needs to be uncovered and addressed. The history, the imagery of seeing people who look like you being enslaved, chained, beaten, and raped, it's so much to process. Then you continue to live in said country who thinks they are doing right by you because they took the chains off. It's literally like saying cage-free for animals. They're still trapped. They can't roam free. And you're ultimately going to kill them anyway. Like we want our freedom. All of it. This week, I'm going to highlight some local musicians from Richmond, obviously. Like I said, local doesn't have to be my local. It can be anywhere in the world. So if you have an artist or band that you want me to listen to, please email me la at launmastered.com or call me 646-389-9079. The first Uncharted artist is Eves, who is a post-hardcore slash alt-rock band. So on my first day, the first thing I did when I woke up at 8 a.m. for no reason was look for coffee shops near me. And the first one to pop up was Lab at Alchemy. Okay, that rhymed. That wasn't intentional. I immediately went to their IG and saw their statement of solidarity. Okay, that was good, too. I might be a rapper, y'all. I was like, okay, you can get my coins since you're out here doing the right thing. I went to this shop every single day I was there. They had cold brew lattes, y'all. Not usually a latte fan, but their mocha was perfection. And when I didn't order that, it was the ice dirty chai. Mm, I love that that was on the menu. A lot of coffee shops don't do that. Okay, anyway, sidetracked. One of the days I decided to buy a t-shirt as a memory. There wasn't much to do in Richmond during a pandemic, but I supported locally when I could. We were talking about the sizing of the shirt, and he was like, yeah, we use this t-shirt company for my band. It runs a little narrow, just wanted to let you know. At the time, I didn't ask what band he was in because I'm silly, but I reached out to the shop afterwards to ask. Eves is a four-piece band and I discovered that Noah the lead singer and guitarist was the one to help me out so thank you if you're a fan of Idol Threat or Thrice this is the band for you you know it's that heavy alt rock but with a melodic flow again I love that type of contrast they also remind me of this bands I love called Boxer Rebellion but to me Noah's voice sounds like Brandon Boyd which I can only describe as soothing velvet for your ears the first song I listened to was Echo. I actually watched the video. The track is really good and the video. Ugh. So they're filming at this live show and something happens. I teared all the way up. When I tell you I was excited for these people, I don't even know. It was just so unexpected and perfect. I won't give it away, but you have to watch. But the song Ghost? Guys. I found my new lay in bed at 4 a.m. thinking about things you shouldn't be thinking about song. I'll just give you this. I tried for so long just to carry the weight of this world on my shoulders. The one where you and I could have been. Damn. Like it's just about making peace with the situation where the guilt still remains. 
Meanwhile, this other person is chilling because he's like, but I know you're all right. You'll be sleeping well tonight. Way harsh. Check out their music on Spotify and follow them at Eves RVA. And that's E-A-V as in Victor, E-S-R-V-A. Chance Fisher, government name Chauncey, is a rapper. Okay, every time I hear Chauncey, I just hear Tasha Mack. Chauncey! No? Y'all haven't been watching the game? It's on Netflix. Ugh, so rude. Anyway, but my homie JR actually used to work with him at this swanky-ass hotel. He put me on to him, and I was not disappointed at all. His style reminds me of Danny Brown, Schoolboy Q, and ASAP Ferg. I like to call them rock star rappers. I don't know why, but their rhymes are grimy and make me want to headbang. Does that make sense? It's rough, and you got to make the stank face. Like, that's what I'm talking about. And although he may be on my uncharted list, don't let that fool you. He's open for Talib Kweli, Mac Miller, and Freddie Gibbs. He's been popping. I really dig his song Candles and Good Riddance, but Staccato is my favorite so far. Upbeat and swaggy. First of all, it opens up with him saying, I don't want to walk with kings. I want to walk with gods. Oh, okay. Then he goes on to say one of the smartest lines I've ever heard. I want to be great, but I never had a prototype. I wrote a thousand words, but I couldn't even really get the photo right. Get it? A picture's worth a thousand words. Nothing more I appreciate than brilliance in a rap song. But the whole track is about uplifting our community. That we need to stack it up, stack it up. And that there is more for us out here. But I'm not waiting in the water no more. I'm not waiting on your order no more. I'm not working nine to five just to be another lamb for the slaughter. But bruh, same. Like I felt that I was like, is he talking to me? Because I'm like, I felt all that. Check out his music at soundcloud.com slash Mr. Chance Fisher. And Fisher is spelled F-I-S-C-H-E-R. And follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Mr. Chance Fisher. P.S. His Twitter name is Chakra Zulu. Like, I can't. I'm adding 10 more points to him for that one. So I was reading a few local publications to find out about musicians in Richmond. I stumbled across the article about Butcher Brown in Richmond Magazine. Not to be confused with RVA Mag, which I prefer, actually, because every week they released a playlist curated by a local artist. I thought that was really dope. No matter where you're from, follow them at RVA Mag. Butcher Brown is a five-piece ensemble soul fusion band. The only comparison I can make is that they give me heavy parliament and at times Jurassic 5 vibes. I love J5. If y'all never listen to them, please do and start with Thin Line. But it's a combination of jazz and lyricism. It flows so well together because I always think of jazz as one of the foundations of rap, especially when it involves scatting. As far as Parliament, they have some funky-ass tunes that make you want to slide. On September 18th, they'll be releasing their eighth album, Hashtag King Butch. So we are right on time, y'all. You can visit concordjazz.com to learn more about the release and how to purchase. This album, like their others, was recorded in their studio at home called Jellostone Studio. I love that they have their own setup. Their DJ, DJ Harrison, is also a producer. Hell yeah. Keep it all in house. Definitely a group to take a lesson from. 
They have released two new singles thus far. Tidal Wave is a perfect sultry jazz melody. Think Love Jones-esque. It's smooth, but there are bumps in a good way. Then there's their title single, Hashtag King Butch. This one makes me think in New York. It's that New York head bop jazz, and then the rhymes come in. Now, this reminds me of New York Undercover. That show had the best damn music. I'm very much excited for their album to come out. I think it'll be a perfect soundtrack for Autumn. Check them out and listen to their music by visiting their website, ButcherBrown.com. Follow them on IG at ButcherBrown and on Twitter at ButcherBrown, except this one, the brown doesn't have an O. So it's Butcher, B-R-W-N. There you'll be able to see that they were actually just featured in Brooklyn Vegan. Hell yeah. To learn more about these artists, please visit laonmaster.com slash uncharted. All right, y'all. So this week, I want to highlight Black artists. I found Aziza Andre a few years ago on Instagram. I can't remember exactly how, but y'all know how social media is a trap and we just fall down rabbit holes. So the only thing I could do for my original 2020 vision board was to purchase more art. I knew I wanted a large piece. I remembered how much I loved Aziza's portraits because they were so animated, if that makes sense. So I was scrolling through her page and then I saw her. Miss Dottie. That was it. She's black, beautiful, and had this short auburn pink hair with her baby hairs laid. You knew she was strong and intelligent. And she had a bow, which anyone who knows me knows that's my jam. I can only describe it as looking at a page out of a pop art comic book. I reached out to Aziza and we got to talking about art, the state of the world, and how she was moving to Atlanta during COVID and a revolution. She's amazing. I'm really excited to see where her art takes her. She's from Manhattan, has her Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Illustration from Savannah College of Art and Design, and she's currently instructing art in the Atlanta community. Please check her out. Parallel is also another must-see and own. I can't wait to add that to my collection. So head to AzizaAndre.com, and that's A, Z as in zebra, I, Z as in zebra, A, Andre. And follow her on social, at AzizaAndre. The first piece of art I bought during quarantine was from Art by Alia. It had been circling the blogs and internet, and I was like, I have to have this. She created the incredible What They Really Want DMX poster, which featured the name breakdown. You know, there was Brenda Letitia, Linda Felicia, Dawn, LaShawn, Inez, and Alicia. Well, Alia created a face and aesthetic for every single name. It is legendary and belongs in a music museum. It is just too damn good. As far as other music-related art, she has an entire Big Papa collection. I love the Tupac I Get Around piece. Oh, and the Leah cover. Oh, that one, that one may have to be next, honestly. She also created some dope movie art, Love and Basketball, Poetic Justice, and my fave, Baby Boy. Alia also creates a lot of gorgeous pieces of black woman. My favorite is Sunset Swim. Please visit her website, artbyalia.com, and that's artbyalyah.com, and follow her on social at artbyalia and alia vanessa, and vanessa has two S's. Okay, so my favorite color is blue. Every damn shade of it. Well, sorry, baby blue, you were very much lost. I'm on Twitter, 
And I see this out of the world image that is filled with deep blue that radiated against yellow and red and purple. But it was the blue that sent me over. Jasmine, who's known as Black Sneakers, is the talent to behold. She has created a world in which I want to live. Endless possibilities, endless doorways. This particular piece was called In the Summer, I Wish to Be With You. Like, damn, it made me miss summer, like real life summer, so bad. Then I saw over and over again and was like, well, this perfectly captured how I was feeling during quarantine. Shit, how I've been feeling in life. Jasmine is from North Carolina and is only 20 years old. She's already been featured in New York Magazine and Washington Post. Find her work at blacksneakers-art.com. Follow her on IG at black, but it's B-L-C-K, no A, sneakers. So B-L-C-K sneakers. And on Twitter at black sneakers. And that's black spelled normally, but with two Ks, sneakers. B-L-A-C-K-K-S-N-E-A-K-E-R-S. Hey, that rhymes. So since this is the Richmond episode, I've got to give a shout out to the artists down there. Richmond was filled with so much art. On the walls, on the buildings, everywhere you turn, there was artwork. When I went to the Poe Museum, I was not expecting to walk out and see a mini art exhibit, which props to the people at the Poe Museum who were like, hell yeah, put this on our building. There was so much imagery of black and white in unity and in solidarity. Black Lives Matter paintings. It was just everything and it melted my heart. Immediately, my attention turned to this colorful painting of a black woman with these gold hoops, Afro made of blues and gold, pinks and brown, eyes closed, lashes perfect, lips with my favorite color lipstick, dark maroon. To the right of her face, it was painted in bright turquoise. We need to talk. I love that. The particular painting, that particular painting was done by an artist named Paris. Her Instagram is I am her art. Then I started to see these pieces all over the city. I had to know more. Artist Hamilton Glass started the Mending Walls Project in RVA during the revolution of 2020. The name comes from the Robert Frost, Frost poem, Mending Walls, about two neighbors and the wall between them. While most people came to peacefully protest in Richmond, outside agitators and opportunists came to destroy the city. However, there were important feelings and messages also left on the streets and walls of the city. He felt that this was the time for us to ask questions and have a conversation. And art is the way, especially in RVA, which has what I didn't know, but makes per perfect sense, one of the biggest collections of public art in the country. To support this project and learn more about all the individual artists, please visit MendingWallsRVA.com and follow them on social at MendingWallsRVA. If you'd like to submit a Black-owned business, artist, or content creator, please fill out the form at LAUnmastered.com BLM. You can also email me la at LAUnmastered.com or call me 646-389-389. 9079. All right, so let me keep it all the way real about Richmond. I fucking loved it. I won't lie at all and say I wasn't kind of scared driving down south, especially right now. 
And I know Richmond isn't so far down south, but anything past Philly, I kind of give a side eye to shit, even parts of Jersey. I had an idea in my head of what I thought this place would be like. I only really knew about it from my friends and what I saw on Twitter news. Yes, Twitter is where I get most of my information. Yes, I fact check it because I'm not a dumbass, but there is more accuracy on there than those bullshit news sites. So from that, I knew Richmond wasn't with the shits. The shits being racism, policing, gentrification, none of it. I saw how they murked that Robert E. Lee statue too. That shit was dope. One of my favorite photographs that have come out of this revolution is the one with the two black ballerinas with their fist up in front of this statue. It was captured by Chris George. What's crazy is that at that time, I thought there was so much tagging on there. And let me tell you, it's something else now. But let's talk about the city first. I got into Richmond as the sun was setting, so I didn't see much. But when I pulled into the rental, I noticed that there was artwork on the wall next door of hands with a pigeon, I think. But sprayed on the hands were the letters BLM. I was like, okay. The next day, I wanted to go get coffee and grab a few last minute items. I hopped in the car and as soon as I turned the corner, I saw the Virginia Repertory Theater, which was obviously closed. The marquee had Black Lives Matter. I was like, what? All this time driving on Long Island, I haven't seen that once. I was like, this is dope. I keep driving and I realize that the entire city is painted in Black Lives Matter art. Every storefront, every restaurant, every shop. I knew no matter where I was going in this city, my business, my money, my life would matter. Something felt so good about that. And I don't feel that in this place that I call home. On Long Island, some businesses, most of them did not, put up a post of solidarity on Instagram and then just kept it moving. I dig into the restaurant industry's lack of acknowledgement and support in the article I wrote for Eater, which you can read by visiting launmaster.com slash BLM. Plug. <laughs> what I was seeing in Richmond, I can only describe as a utopian dream. I couldn't believe my eyes. So after I left the lab at Alchemy, I headed to CVS and then to the 7-Eleven nearby because I needed ice. I get out of my car and there were two older gentlemen standing out front. One of them turned to me and said, how you doing, young sister? And I was like, I'm good. And you? He's like, all right, I'm doing real good. We exchanged, have a nice days, and I went inside. This was my first ever Black-owned 7-Eleven. Owners, Black. Employees, Black. I wanted to take a picture, but I didn't want to be a freak. Even the now hiring sign out front was a Black dude smiling with his thumb up. Have you ever? I don't know why it brought me so much joy, but it did. Yes, in New York, a lot of 7-Elevens, bodegas, and other small shops are owned by people of color, usually Asian, Middle Eastern, or Latinx. But rarely, if ever, do you see Black people working at these shops, let alone owning them. The one thing I love most about this city was the diversity and the fact that there were Black people everywhere. I did not go anywhere and not see a Black person. In New York, that's not always possible. Yes, I live in Uniondale, which is predominantly black and brown, but it's tiny as fuck. Once I leave my block and venture out, it's a wrap. There are plenty of times I'm at Trader Joe's or Fairway or anywhere outside of a few select towns that I'm the only black person around. And listen, I don't sit there and count, but you pick up on it. But Richmond, there are black people everywhere. I loved it. Seeing people that look like you every day feels so good. 
On top of that, you see the visual representation of what Dr. King was talking about. Little black boys and girls holding hands with little white girls and boys. People of all walks of life were friends walking in groups together. It was so powerful. I would just stand outside the apartment and take it all in. I was curious, so I looked into the demographics of Richmond. I saw varying numbers on census.gov and a few other sites. But it's approximately 47% black, 47% white, 7% Latinx, 2% Asian, but only 0.5% Native American, which makes me super sad because Virginia, hello. I've never in my life seen demographics like this, though. I've never been in a place that had equal amounts of black and white people. And here, no matter your color, you better be on the right side because there's no place for intolerance in this city. They have proved that time and time again to each other, the police, suburban racists, and the outside agitators. Speaking of, let's talk about the booger lickers, huh? Like I said, my friend JR also lives in Richmond. I've known this human since 2012. We actually met at that New Year's Eve party Leanne took me to and we instantly clicked. You put two sages in a room together and it becomes witty warfare. I don't remember a lot of that night because after midnight, we were all just taking Andre to the dome. However, at some point in the night, we became future ex-spouses. So that just goes to show how much we actually get along. But anyway, when I met him, he was a 20-something-year-old punk dude who had longer hair, tatted up. He still has his tats. Don't worry. And was the lead singer of a post-hardcore punk band called Censors, which in the few months before I moved to L.A., I was definitely a groupie of. But now this man's all cleaned up, fresh cut, same facial hair. I'm like, who is this person? He's been the GM of this barbershop called High Point for the last five years, I believe. And he recently graduated from barber school. Yay. Wait, I feel like that's not what you call it, but oh well. Visit the shop at highpointbarbershop.com. They have sick ass merch, the softest beanies I've ever owned. And plug plug, follow him at jr underscore cuts underscore hair underscore. Anyway, for as long as I've known him, he's been a social justice activist. He was protesting during Occupy for Black Lives Matter. He was living in Virginia during like what happened in Charlottesville, where Heather Heyer was murdered in the street by a racist piece of shit. So Jr. went out there and he protested. Having him to talk to about what was really going on in Richmond was so important. On my last night, I told him about the wannabe militia white dudes I saw on two different occasions. The first time was on Monday night when I did another quick run to 7-Eleven. I was online behind a young, maybe 20 to 22 year old white dude in all black with an American flag on his arm. I then noticed that he had a gun on his hip. Now, Arizona made me less afraid of seeing guns because they were all also in open carry state. But his demeanor and everything about him seemed stiff and wrong. It wasn't until I went back outside and saw him with another white dude in the same outfit with the same crew cut. I was like, that's weird. When I get back to my apartment, which is only a few blocks away, I saw another one in the lot across from me. Same outfit, same cut, handgun on his head. Again, I knew they weren't there for any type of peaceful protest. Then on Tuesday, I went to grab coffee before hitting the museums and I turned to walk out. I stopped dead in my tracks because I saw a member of the Richmond PD with a large assault style rifle. Now, I know nothing about guns, so I kept describing it as an AK because I don't know. 
But I do not want to share the wrong information with y'all. So I went to Richmond.com and headed to their weapons section. They provide the type of weaponry Richmond cops have at their disposal. Time out. Why these cops need machine guns is a big ass mystery to me. Why would an officer need a machine gun unless their intention was to kill multiple people? Sounds like they're prepared for war. But with who? The people? I mean, I guess it's already started. But I digress. So I look up these guns and realized it was actually what I believe to be a Smith & Wesson M&P 15, which is a version of an AR-15. I based that off of the handle. Is, is that what it's called? You know, like the back of it? But whatever. You know what I'm saying. I let him pass and then I go for the door and stop again. I see several white men in trash mark camo. Fuck that place. I'll never say their name and give them any promo. Haven't shopped there since 2016 when I learned about the Walton family and how much money they donate to Dumpster Diver. Y'all should look that up. I would rather pay the extra dollar to Target, especially since their CEO was like, Black Lives Matter, you do you, we got insurance and we're taking care of our people. I understand that not everyone can afford to pay an extra dollar or two, but if you can, do it. Anyway, all these dudes had ARs. I watched them walk by one by one by one. I turn and look at homie behind the counter because I'm scared. But mind you, it's Rona out here. You can't stay inside places of business. But he looks at me and with his eyes, he says, yeah, girl, this is real. And you don't have to leave yet. I wait until they all pass or so I think. And then I walk out. I almost run right into a straggler. I got close enough where I saw a small sticker that said guns rights. I was like, okay. What's funny is, you know, when you're so close to someone and you almost run into each other and then you make awkward eye contact, he kept his eyes down the whole time. I'm sure it was some racist shit, but I took it as, oh, you're a punk ass buster. And I know this melanin was looking real good and made your racist ass question everything. I know, I know. I was looking real good that day because I was ready for my ghost wedding to Edgar Allan Poe. But anyway, all jokes aside, I was fucking scared. Like, y'all can just walk around here with the popo and it's all good. So after I tell JR all this, he says, yeah, well, you ever heard of the Boogaloos? I'm like, oh, hell no. Like, I knew they existed, but they're not that brazen up here, at least not yet, or at least not in my neck of the woods. These are real racist ass motherfuckers hiding behind the lie that they are here for the preservation of the country. Bullshit. You know why? Because a week to the day, Kyle Rittenhouse was arrested in Illinois for murdering two people and injuring another at the protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He was 17 years old. He crossed state lines with his AR to go murder people. People who dared to use the First Amendment rights to speak out against injustice. One of the people he murdered was Anthony Huber. He was a 26-year-old man from Silver Lake, Wisconsin. He was also a skateboarder. So when he saw Rittenhouse murder someone, he moved his girlfriend out of harm's way, ran after him, beat his ass with a skateboard to prevent him from going on a mass rampage. Unfortunately, Rittenhouse shot him twice in the chest and he died instantly. So I want to take a moment and thank Anthony for sacrificing his life for others. Because the cops didn't do shit, but give this little racist piece of trash a bottle of water and thank him for being there. It's fucking sickening. So let's go back to the beginning. What happened in Kenosha? 
On August 23rd, Jacob Blake broke up a fight. The cops were called. They immediately assumed he was the problem. He tries to leave and get in his car with his kids. And one of the cops, who we now know to be Rustin Shesky, as Jacob tried to enter his car, Shesky held Jacob by the tank top and shot him in the back seven times. Let me say this again. He had three little boys under 10 in the car. One of them, it was their birthday. There is no way the officer feared for his life or was protecting and serving anyone. He didn't care about those little boys. Seven times in the car. You ever heard of Ricochet? Like, we need to all be thankful that not only is Jacob miraculously alive, but so are his babies. And everyone's sitting here talking about he had a knife in his car. Yeah, dumbass. How they knew that was because he told them up front. And you're telling me three cops don't know how to subdue one man pulling a knife on them? Y'all do know that British cops don't carry guns and do this shit all the time, right? I don't want those people as cops. You clearly don't know how to protect anyone. Fuck out of here. And if having a knife in your car means you deserve to be murdered by the police after you do the right thing by telling them that it's in the car would mean that this could happen to me. I've since removed the knife from my car. I'm not going anywhere anyway because I'm in self-quarantine until next Saturday because Virginia was, of course, added to the travel ban list days before I left. But I took it out because that shit scared me. Even if I tell you I may get shot? Hell no. I have that knife because I'm a woman who was working at restaurants so late at night. And did I say, I'm a woman, I trust no one? I began carrying it in Arizona because everyone had a weapon there. So it was a baby step to a gun, I guess. But I guess I got to risk it now because, oh, well, luckily I took that self-defense class for a few months once. But this is what's so crazy. We watched a life be drained from George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds by murderous pieces of garbage. It changed us, the people. We were wide awake and ready for this revolution. Black people had had enough, as far as the justice system was concerned, to our work lives. But the one thing it didn't change was the behavior of the people who needed to change the most. The cops and the politicians. They're all out here like, oh, well, still murdering. On top of that, the treatment of us and the response to us being fed up with being murdered is like, suck it up and stop destroying property because we're killing you. What? It's not right. Like people are more worked up about some stupid ass buildings than they are about the fact that Jacob Blake is paralyzed and still handcuffed to a bed. Where is he going? Seriously. They think we're not human. Innocent until proven guilty does not apply to us. Legally owning a gun does not apply to us. Being scared does not apply to us. Being a human with human reactions does not apply to us. Any of those things will get us murdered. With us, the cops are our judge, jury, and executioner. And this has to change. There's so many cops with white hoods under their blue uniforms. And by the way, whoever needs to hear this, blue lives do not fucking exist. Being an officer, risking your life is what you signed up for. At birth, black people did not choose their skin color and to risk their life by just going outside or sleeping. 
A white officer can take off his blue uniform and no one will know he's a cop. Well, there's some giveaways. And that was all shade, by the way. But a black officer is just another black man who's at risk of dying at the hands of police. We didn't sign up to be put into harm's way. We were just born and innocent and wanted to live a prosperous life. Then you hit like three or four and realize that the system is fucking rigged. Maybe it was five or six for some of y'all, but we were young as fuck. My cousin is a cop. She was shot on duty and has since retired. A close friend's husband is an officer. So it's hard for me to be like, all cops are bastards because of them. But they're also black, so it's different for them. Don't get me wrong. Some of our own ain't shit as officers and don't do nothing to help our communities. So a part of my vernacular during this movement has never really included fuck the police. But it's getting really hard not to scream fuck 12 from the top of my lungs every damn day. Y'all don't give a fuck about my life. You think people who look like me are a threat. It's not just one or two of y'all. It's most of y'all. Let's keep it real. In the first episode, I said, it ain't a few bad apples. It's the whole fucking tree that's rotten. Remove it. Defund the police. Abolish policing as we know it today. Y'all really thought an organization which started as slave catching was going to evolve into something pleasant? I know this country isn't Mayberry and there are serious criminals out there. But it ain't most people. But y'all treat everyone as such. Imagine what we could do if we put money into education, housing, medical. We would flourish. The economy would thrive. Let's look at Kenosha. If you go to Kenosha.org, you can see their operating budget. The total budget is $86,274,832. The police department receives $30,610,391 which is approximately $209,000 more than the city generates in revenue outside of property tax. Health services received a whopping $1,336,122. Even the parks get $2 million more than healthcare. How? So you mean to tell me that we can't afford universal healthcare? Because if a small ass town like Kenosha has a budget like this, the rest of the country is probably at the same proportions. Think about it. Cops get 35% of the budget. Healthcare gets 1.5% of the budget. How does it cost more to police people than it does to care for their medical well-being? That makes no sense to me. That shit is gross. So the last public place that I spent time in Richmond was on Monument Ave at the Robert E. Lee Memorial. It was a sight to be seen. I'm going to post pictures of the intricacies I found. Just looking at it as a whole, you see BLM, ACAB, fuck racism, fuck white supremacy, fuck dumpster. But when you go up close, you can find my skin is beautiful. I matter. No matter our color, gender, sexuality, we all bleed the same color. Black trans lives matter. This time is different. It was remarkable. There was also red paint made to look like blood dripping from the top because he was a racist murderer. It was powerful. I hope it never gets removed. Well, he can go, but not the rest of it. The artwork around was so beautiful, too. It said, we're not leaving. Black lives inspire. 
Brianna's name was sprayed in huge letters around the guard. On the other side, it said defund the police, power our streets, BLM. There was a small garden, a corkboard where you could leave business cards of black business owners. There were two basketball hoops with a basketball there. It turned into an interactive piece of art for the community. What really broke me down while I was there were the photos of the lost by the hands of the police circling the monument. I tried to read as many as possible, made sure to read the stories I did not know. I want to share one with you. It's the story of Natasha McKenna from Alexandria, Virginia. She was in jail for an outstanding warrant because she had allegedly attacked a police officer. She was supposed to be transferred from Fairfax back to Alexandria, but there was a week-long delay. When it was time for the transfer, due to her previous charge, she was handcuffed with arms behind her back, legs shackled, and a spit mask placed over her face. A sheriff decided, because Natasha wouldn't bend her knees to be placed in the restraint chair, she deserved to be tasered four times. Then the sheriff's emergency response team was called, made up of six people, mind you, for a five foot four, 130 pound female. In this time, Natasha had suffered a cardiac arrest and did not receive immediate medical attention. She was resuscitated on the way to the hospital, but was declared brain dead. After five days on life support, she was finally taken off. I chose her story because she didn't deserve to die, regardless of her charge, not conviction, charge. Even if it was her conviction, still didn't deserve to die. But this is what I'm talking about. Innocent until proven guilty does not apply to us. Her story isn't perfect, but she is still a person who deserved humane treatment. Someone's criminal past does not give anyone the right to murder them. We are not God. It's why I legitimately don't believe in capital punishment. The concept people don't understand is that people in jail and prisons are humans. They are in the charge of the state and federal governments. But the way that the prison system is set up to break and kill black and brown people, what else could you expect? We need so many reformations in the judicial and prison system is an absolute priority. A good first step would be to stop giving these motherfuckers a paid vacation every single time they kill one of us. It's a slap in the face, a dance on the grave. It makes me physically sick every time. What kills me is that while I was there taking it all in, I had no idea that two more names would be added a week after I left. It just feels like this will never end. But the thing about Richmond was that I didn't feel as if I was in this fight alone. Yes, I was definitely outside more in the last five months, but being in a community where people believe in equality and fight for equality is something else. There is this energy there. I felt connected in a way I haven't. I started to consider this place as a contender for a new home. It also helped that every day that I was there, Kristen kept being like, so when you move to Richmond and after nine days, my ass was like, yeah, I would love to live in the arts district when I move to Richmond. And on top of all that, the music kept giving me signs. Now, Virginia itself has given the entertainment world so many legends. You got Ella Fitzgerald out of Newport News, Missy out of Portsmouth, 
Pharrell and the Clips out of Virginia Beach, Timbo from Norfolk, shout out to Jason Mraz in Mechanicsville, Wendell Scott, one of the first black NASCAR drivers and the first African-American to win the Grand National Series. He's from Danville. My boo, Allen Iverson from Hampton. Honorable mention to finance Blair Underwood, who was born in Tacoma, Washington, but raised in Petersburg, Virginia. But Richmond itself has produced many legends of their own. Russell Wilson, you know, the husband of Sierra, father to their beautiful babies, most recently win. Oh, and he also, you know, won the Super Bowl and he's a quarterback for the Seahawks. The most famous actor I can think of that came out of there was Bill Bojangles Robinson himself. Yup, Mr. Bojangles. He was a tap dancer, singer, and actor, and the highest paid African-American entertainer in America during the first half of the 20th century. Hell yeah. He was the most popular entertainment for both black and white audiences, and he's most notably remembered for dancing with Shirley Temple. Just a tangent real quick. We use the term tap dancing for massa in regards to people Uncle Tomming about. I refuse to demean this man who lived during a time where they weren't even letting us through the door. What else was he, was he supposed to do? He ball changed so Gregory Hines could have wings so Savion Glover could stomp. I'm not mad at him for the roles he took. Not him, not Hattie McDaniel for playing Mammy and Gone with the Wind because that led her to being the first African-American to win an Oscar. I'm not even going to hate on Denzel for his training day win because he made Malcolm X and the Academy ignored it. But of course, when he was a corrupt cop, they're like, bravo, bravo. They gave Halle Berry an award for banging Billy Bob, but not for her immaculate performance in now introducing, introducing Dorothy Dandridge. But you know, Hollywood's trash. I do think, though, that I'm going to change the term to dribbling for Massa because the NBA and what they did it just goes to show like you cared more about your livelihood at the end of the day. And yeah, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but I do know that postponing one game didn't do shit for the cause because all postponing does is delay the influx of cash. I really hope these dudes are like, fuck that shit and take a stance like a real one. No more games, period. Not that I'm really feeling the MLB right now either, but I got to give it up to Brody Van Wagenen, which is the only time I'll probably ever do so because that leaked video was epic. Why I use air quotes you cannot see is because Brody is a former agent. I think that this was the dopest setup, allegedly, of all time and every GM better recognize. And what did the Mets do? Well, they walked out onto the field for a moment of silence like Manfred wanted them to do for some performative bullshit. Then the Mets dipped, leaving a Black Lives Matter shirt on the field. And I love to see it. But like I said, they went back to playing, so they're trash too. As far as music, you got Guar, which I discovered from forming a relationship with a silent record store owner in Mesa, Arizona, while I was working at Livewire. They were actually participating in the 2015 record store day. The owner, Scott, was a huge fan and told me all about them and showed me Polaroids from that day. Fun fact, they dress as monsters and are a heavy metal band. Then you got Elliot Yamin. Can't forget about him. Don't act like you don't know because he had that 2007 hit we all love. So baby, I will wait for you because I don't know what else I can do. Oh, that shit was fire. 
But the number one most important person who came out of Richmond, for me at least, musically, is D'Angelo. I had no idea, Mr. How does it feel himself was from here. Yum. I just love it. So, yeah, a lot of amazing people came out of Richmond. Okay, but bitch, what does that have to do with you and music? Okay, rude. First of all, let me explain. So one of my first nights there, my girl Kristen and I had a long in-depth conversation about life. Brief background on Chris. I met her while she was bartending at the same restaurant I worked at with Star and Zach. One thing I'll say about that place, besides it being toxic as fuck, I made some amazing friends there. Kristen is an environmental activist. She has made it her life. She has her master's in sustainability and is now a top level manager at a major corporation running their first ever sustainability department. So bravo to her. This champion also moved in the middle of a pandemic, didn't get to say bye to anyone and quarantined alone for several weeks before moving in with her family. Sorry to tell your business girl, but you are incredible. She has truly taught me so much about the environment and about using alternative materials that are available to us. In addition, she constantly preaches that this environment cannot be saved without us. And a large part of that is how we treat each other. If humans cannot love and protect each other, how will we protect Mother Nature? She really speaks right to my hippie heart. Unfortunately, due to changing jobs and moving, she hasn't been able to post as much on her blog, but follow her on IG at sustain underscore planet underscore earth. There's so much great information on her page. So her and I were having a conversation about my future, my path, and how everything is just so up in the air. I, of course, start crying because that's my new thing now. Yo, the emotional effects of this pandemic. I wasn't really aware until I saw Kristen and hugged her for five minutes and we wept. By the way, getting your brain swabbed was so worth that hug. I'd do it again. But you forget how important human touch is. I've always been a hugger, but now it's so different because it's not my immediate response anymore. Just conversing and discussing feelings makes me emotional now. Even though I'm here with my mom, I spend a lot of time alone. So I want all of you to be mindful of that, that you won't be fully yourself when you first venture out. Conversations will make you awkward. You may cry, but embrace that shit. It's just nice to feel something. Okay, so in this conversation, she said to me, Lauren, I could so see you running your own venue. I was like, Kristen, that's my dream. But the way Rona set up, I let it go. Live music won't be the same for a long time, if ever. And it just didn't seem like a business I could sustain. She was like, girl, if anything, this just gave you another way to ensure that your business survives. You will now be prepared for it and be able to plan ahead. I was like, damn, I didn't even think of it like that. I told her I had a business plan, the layout, the menu, everything, but I just gave up and it cost a whole hell of a lot of money. I always knew I wouldn't do it in New York, but I didn't know where. Here comes my girl. Well, you know, the real estate in Richmond is a lot cheaper. And she's like, there'll be plenty of spaces available. All while she's smiling at me like that Jack Nicholson gift from anger management. But now my wheels are turning like, huh? She said, you can find a job you love 
and work on your dream. You can do it all. You don't have to choose means to an end. Let me tell you, she motivated my ass so much. I have been so lost in this hopeless sauce that I just stopped dreaming, stopped planning for my future. Then something happened to me when I returned to the Fine Arts Museum to see Wiley's Rumor of War statue. Took me 97 hours, but I came back to this as promised. I parked my car and walked over to the statue. I heard someone say hello to me and I look over to my left and I see two security guards smiling at me. One of them says, when you're done, I'd like to tell you something about the statue. I'm like, okay. Now, if this was in New York, I would have ignored them and wait to be greeted by the New York trash men slogan. Well, fuck you then, you ugly anyway. But Southern Belle Lauren is all about courtesy. So after, why did I do a British accent when I was in the South? Anyway, so after I get my pictures, I walk over, I keep my distance. He introduced himself as Tawan. I told him my name. Then he tried to shake my hand. I apologized and said no. He proceeds to ask me where I was from. I'm like, New York. He's like, me too. He's like, I felt that New York energy. He said that he grew up in Brooklyn on Saratoga Ave. I was like, dope. I'm from Long Island. He says, I lived in Hempstead for a bit. I'm like, I'm from Uniondale. What? So I asked him if he liked it here. He said he loved it in Richmond and that he'd been here for several, for several years. He told me that there's so much diversity and it's a great place to raise a family. Then he's like, he was heavy into the music industry in New York. Now I'm sitting there like, universe, what message are you trying to give me right now? He was a rapper, but mainly a writer. His artist name is Trigger the Gambler and his brother is Smooth the Hustler. We began talking about the artists he worked with, but it wasn't in a I need you to know I'm popping way. It was the way someone speaks when they're passionate and proud of the work that they've done. And if you look him up, he wasn't lying. His track with his brother Broken Language is a whole 90s New York rap vibe. Gives me Rakim and Mob Deep flows. They are both also on SWV's track, You're the One, but the 96 Anthem All-Star Remix. You know, the original is... You're the one for me. When you need, you can call on me. All I want. Okay, I'm not going to. But the remix samples uh, Tanya Gardner's Heartbeat. Heartbeat. And features Trigger and Smooth, Jay-Z, and a personal fave, Lost Boys, Mr. Cheeks Fava. Next thing I know, he and I are talking about record labels, their demonic 360 deals, production deals, and the most important lesson that I keep emphasizing, I come up, you come up. I told him I constantly advocate for artists to understand the business as much as they understand the music. I told him about my podcast and he offered to come on an episode to speak about the business. And that's so major. So in the future, we're going to get into it. Tawan let me know that he was involved in the live music scene in Richmond for some time. Then things changed. He decided to start an armed security company because the need for protection was, obviously, in heavy demand. But he made sure to tell me that he still gets involved with the music whenever he can. So what's the importance of Noah randomly mentioning his band at the coffee shop, JR going from music full-time to becoming a barber, meeting a 90s rap legend turned security company owner, to my friend Kristen saying my dream out loud without a prompt from me? Well, just because life takes you on a particular journey doesn't mean that we have to give up on our dream. And in my case, that's the music. There's always a means to an end. 
but you don't have to enjoy or work on your passion at the end. You can always do it. I will own my venue one day. How I get there is irrelevant. Now, I know I've painted a pretty picture and put a pretty bow on top of Richmond, but as always, I got to be honest. This is still the South. Outside the city limits and into the suburbs of Richmond, you will find those racists. When I drove back to New York, it was a bright and sunny day, unlike the monsoon I was driving through on the way down. But it was so clear that I was able to see all the plantation exit signs. And let me tell you, the energy that radiates when you drive through the bush down there. mm. And you can't help but think of all the bloodshed and pain. In addition, the arts district, which I loved and where I stayed, had a large houseless population, which makes me think that the local government, aside from allowing their cops to be extremely vicious, doesn't really care about all of their citizens. However, at the end of the day, if you replace the plantations with the land where the indigenous people were slaughtered, it sounds a lot like New York City and Long Island. I mean, but let us not have forget that Pocahontas was from Virginia and John Rolfe was a pedo and they did a lot of damage down there too, obviously. The difference is that the diversity in Richmond is rooted in solidarity and not segregation. New York is also not affordable at all. And the job competition is so much lower than it is here. Bitch, what are you trying to say? Well, I'm at a crossroads in my life. No job, no job prospects, living in my mom's guest room, not even in my old room. No man here. And I've been thinking about moving for a while since I've been locked up in this room for five months. And in five months, I can't even count how many applications I've sent out, not including the two years that I've been looking for a full-time job. When I tell you in five months, I haven't even gotten a rejection letter. That's not good. I will never move out west again because it's way too far. But Richmond, that's a six-hour drive, a one-hour flight. My dad is in Atlanta. Sade and my family are in Miami. I got my family in Philly and Maryland. My aunt plans on moving to Florida. My mom will most likely move down there in a few years. I mean, and on top of it all, I'd be able to afford to live on my own, which I miss terribly. I would also be able to do it all as far as my career and my music goals. I want to get my life together, not because I think it's due time, but because I'm ready. I'm ready to jump back out there. I'm about to be 35 years old. I'm highly educated, seasoned, and a sexy young thing, okay? (laughs) But it's time to go somewhere I will be appreciated as a human and for my many talents. With that said, I think it's time to say goodbye to New York again and start the next chapter of my life in Richmond. Here are my top five favorite songs from Virginians. First, honorable mention to Jason Mraz for you and I both the acoustic version because that shit is a bop and it's so good and so heartfelt. Number five, When the Last Time by The Clips. Okay, this was hella hard because I wanted to do grinding so bad, particularly the reggae remix. But this track is just so good. And the video, I always love a club scene, especially with the blue background. It always reminds me of Belly or the Hot and Her and Yeah videos. First of all, it's the first line of the first verse that immediately makes this track a banger. 
top down, chrome spinning. You see the balls grinning. I'm loving these fucking women. The track always gets me so hyped. I think this was senior year too, because I definitely remember pulling up with the Civic with Sade like we were fucking ballers. Now, I'm still tight with Pusha for verifying what we already knew about Adonis, because we knew, but still fucked up. But mainly for going after 40, who's Drake's producer who has MS and wishing death on him. That's not okay. I don't care what the battle rules state. He's in musical timeout for me. Number four, Lap Dance by N.E.R.D. Now, this track was so inappropriate, which obviously made me love it. It was just fire because it was hip hop and rock. Like that riff is just so sick. Combine that with Pharrell rhyming and singing on it. Then you hear Vita come in like, oh, baby, you want me? Oh, baby, you want me? Now you can get this lap dance here for free. And then that video, you got them rolling around on their BMX bikes. Yeah, there were chicks in the best in their best dance gear. But I loved how Vita was in her beater and jeans just kicking it. Yo, side note, what happened to Vita and Lee Harvey? They were pretty dope. But the best thing about this song is its main theme. Although sexy as fuck, it's about how most politicians are trash. It's so real how I feel because this society that makes a nigga want to kill. I'm straight ill riding my motorcycle down the streets while the government is sounding like strippers to me. And they keep saying, but I don't want to hear it. Oh, baby, you want me? Ooh, okay, let me stop. Okay. Politicians make all these empty promises and don't deliver. Same way if you at the club and a dancer's like, ooh, I'm going to give you a lap dance for free. No, you're about to be hustled. And how relevant is that track now? Number three, Lady by D'Angelo. First and foremost, LL is a close second, but don't no one lick their lips like D'Angelo. I just had to say that. Anyway, this one was tough, too, because Untitled is the jam. Brown Sugar is just everything. And I also wanted to include You Should Be Here with Raphael Sadiq because that's a whole wave. You should be here. Girl, I got more than a big dick and some money. Oh, dripping that BDE. So good. But I decided to go with my favorite lady. Another great video, just so much color. The green wall in the background, the lead chick short Hollywood wave haircut, the oversized jackets, just here for it. But what I love about this song is he's like, I want everyone to know you're my boo. There is no one else for me. It's you. Damn. Like, this is the song I want blaring out of the boombox when someone say anything's me. <laughs> one can dream. But he says... I'm tired of having what we feel. I'm trying to come with the real. But I'm going to make it known. Because I want them to. You're my lady. You're mine. Okay. I'm sorry, all my. It's so good. It's just a perfect neo-soul jazz joint. Number two. Sock it to me. Missy Elliott featuring DeBrat. Now no one makes a video or track like Missy. She's absolutely in my top 10 favorite artists of all time. Missy can rap, sing, dance, and bring all the energy. I really wanted to do Hot Boys. I probably still listen to that track at least once a month. The song is perfect. Missy, Eve, Little Mo. First of all, the track opens with, 
this is for the ghetto motherfuckers. Oh, okay. Hope y'all are picturing 13-year-old Lauren in the mirror with her bob and tattoo choker necklace going off like, you a hot boy, a rock boy, a fun toy, total Glock boy. But I'm choosing Socket to me because this was the first song I heard by her. And she had Debrat on the track. This video was wild. She was like on Mars or something in a rock'em sock'em suit running from robots. I don't know, but still so good. The best part about this song is my favorite lyrics. My hormones jumping like a disco. I be popping mess like some Cisco. Hey, all you gotta say is that Missy go. One, I was 12 in junior high school, so that hormones line, I felt that in my chest. And two, that Crisco line is so good because that mess that I'll be leaving, like, that was a great description. So just a perfect classic 90s joint. Number one, It Don't Mean a Thing by Ella Fitzgerald. Okay, now y'all know Miss Ella had to be first. She's the first lady of song and the queen of jazz. She's worked with Duke, Dizzy, and Nat. Lady Ella holds her own. Fun fact about Ella Fitzgerald. While she was living in New York, her name was pulled in the weekly drawing for Amateur Night at the Apollo. Now, this is back in 1934. So wild to think about because we grew up watching the Apollo after SNL, if your parents let you say that. Mine did. But she was going to dance, and then the crowd started booing her before she even started. So then she did a last minute switch to sing. By the end of her set, they were demanding an encore. So this particular tune is so important to me because the one and only year I did musical theater when I was nine, this was a song we performed. Uh, We had this gold sequence army costume. It was so cute. I loved it. Trey adorable. But I love this track because it's so fun. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do wap, 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 do wap. I love it. It's so fun. I very much enjoy swing and bebop. It changes the temperament of jazz a bit, you know? Don't always want to be in a sentimental mood. To listen to these jams, please visit elionmaster.com slash top five, and that's the number five, or listen to the top five playlist on Spotify at LA Unmastered. I was in the middle of working on this episode and decided to take a break and check my phone. The first photo that pops up is of Chadwick Boseman. I'm like, oh my God, he must be making a new movie. Uh, my immediate excitement turned into tears. Our beloved Chadwick, our T'Challa, our king, has died. He had been quietly suffering from stage 3 colon cancer since 2016. It ultimately turned into stage 4 and took him from us on August 28, 2020. What is miraculous is that this man was working and filming all this time. I did notice that he had lost weight, But he was so brolic for Black Panther because, duh, superhero movie. So honestly, I just thought that he went back to his usual size or he was just working on a role. Never did I think that this man was ill. I understand Chadwick Boseman is the actor and Black Panther is a fictional character. But y'all need to understand what this man represented. He was the physical representation of representation. Never in my life did I see a superhero movie with a majority black cast that was just a movie. It wasn't about the plight of black people. 
In fact, it was the opposite. We were thriving. We had Wakanda, a utopia I wish existed. That movie gave me a Koye, my idol, my inspo. I'm in fact so obsessed with her character that I have her spear tatted on my arm. It is a reminder to me that I'm strong, I'm intelligent, I'm a warrior, and I'll never let no man get in my way looking at you, Wakabi. With that said, Okoye made me love Black Panther the character even more. He was a man, a king, yet unlike tradition, his most trusted advisor and the leader of his army was a woman. That's hella respect. You don't see that. It was because of this movie I started reading these particular comics. I've honestly only ever been into the Spider-Man and X-Men comic books as far as reading. But I was stunned to learn that my other fave, Storm, marries T'Challa and they create Azari, their son, and Chimera, their daughter. Black Panther is not confirmed to be her dad, but her sidekick is a panther, so mm, that's her dad. Chadwick made Black Panther real. Not just the character, but what his character meant in Hollywood. An all-black cast, a fine-ass black man lead, a blockbuster movie filled with melanin that wasn't about being black, that generated over a billion dollars worldwide. This was everything. I saw this movie three times in theaters. One of those times I took my little sister... I think I've said it, but just to reiterate, I'm a big sister with big brothers, big sisters on Long Island. At the time, she was 15. I loved seeing that smile on her face and how hyped she was after. And let me tell you, this kid is cool as fuck. Like, I feel like a lame when I'm around her. So understand, being overly excited about anything isn't her steez. But this one, she was elated. And this right there is why this film is so important. Seeing ourselves in roles like these is not common at all. Her and I were having the same feelings with 17 years in between us. I also got to experience this movie with my dad, which had so much meaning. Action movies have always been our thing. And he's a huge comic book fanatic. He has read them all from DC to Marvel. The excitement in his eyes melted me. The fact that people of three different age groups had the same feeling is epic and unforgettable. I did see his most recent movie, 21 Bridges, because my mom was dying to see it. It was actually the first movie we rented during quarantine. Totally forgot he played James Brown in Get On Up. That movie really did not get the praise it should have. His performance was amazing. And you got Viola, Octavia, and Dan Aykroyd. Ugh. And Nelson Ellis, a.k.a. Lafayette from True Blood, another one who passed way too soon. Other than those movies and The Avengers, the only other movie I remember seeing him in was 42, the movie about Jackie Robinson. Now, you want to hear something wild? Jackie Robinson Day is usually April 15th, but with COVID this year, they moved it to August 28th, the day that Jackie was made the face of integration in baseball, a task Jackie was ready to take on even though he knew how hard it would be. So the fact that this isn't even the usual Jackie Robinson day is just wild. For us Marvel comic lovers, this is a major loss. For the black community, we are hurting. How in the time of chaos, in the brink of civil war, we lose Black Panther? It just seems so unjust. But there's a message there. And I don't think it's something negative like, we all gonna die. 
I think that we have to keep fighting for our lives like T'Challa did after Killmonger defeated him the first time. And like Chadwick, fighting for his life but still living as much of his life as possible. We are fighters. We are warriors. We will defeat the hate. Our king is dead, but he taught us how to survive. We all need to come together and protect each other. That means Nakia, Shuri, the queen, the Dora, M'Baku, and Bucky, and Agent Ross. Solidarity and unity is the only way. Chadwick, may you rest in peace forever and always. Black Panther will live forever because of you. And Wakanda will thrive forever because of us. We make that promise to you. Thank you so much for listening to the fourth episode of LA Unmastered, which is now available on Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and as of this week, Apple Podcasts. We made it, y'all. Also, shout out to Zachary Mezzo forever and always for composing the dopest theme song for the show and for editing each episode, making me sound like a straight profesh. To hear more of his music, please visit soundcloud.com slash Zachary dash Mezzo or visit launmaster.com slash about or launmaster.com slash podcast and find the link to his music there. Arthur Ashe, tennis legend and Richmond native, said this. You've got to get to the stage in life where going for it is more important than winning or losing. Please protect your energy during this time. Fill your day with peace, love and music and stay doing it no matter what.